Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud, episode 54, with me, your host, Jackie Shea. Like, listen, you're done. Like, your, your body just says no, and, you know, don't go against what your body is telling you, because it's, it's telling you that for a reason. So I told my doctor, I was like, listen, I'm not going to um, take any more chemo. I believe that if you want to overcome illness and thrive in this life, then self-advocacy and hopeful connection through shared experience are necessary ingredients. Healing Out Loud is designed to bring you just that, inspiring, relatable voices that have made it through their darkest days to ultimate triumph by advocating for themselves and engaging with empowering self-care tools. I want you to start healing today. If you like what you hear and want more, there are three ways you can stay in touch. Follow me on Instagram at SheaJackie, S-H-E-A-J-A-C-K-I-E. Join my newsletter at JackieShea.com or contact me directly through JackieShea.com and I will see how I can support you and meet your specific needs. If you missed the last episode on grief and preventative double mastectomy, take a listen at JackieShea.com slash 53. In just a moment, we are going to meet my guest this week, Truett Taylor. Truett was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer at 31 years old, and today he is five years free of cancer and the host of the 1% podcast. Truett has also experienced the loss of a brother to suicide. He is an overcomer, and I'm going to dive into some deep questions with him, like how hard this treatment was on him, why he worked throughout his treatment, the ups and downs of his grief through his brother's suicide, and how he overcame all of it. I'm also going to talk to him about radical forgiveness. Here we go. I have with me Truett Taylor. He is the owner of Taylor Design Shop, a stage three cancer survivor and the host of the 1% podcast. In 2012, Truett was unexpectedly diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. After completing surgery, 10 rounds of chemo and two and a half rounds of radiation, he finished treatment in 2013. Inspired by being cancer-free for five years, Truett launched the 1% Podcast. On the 1% Podcast, he interviews young adults who are battling or surviving an unexpected cancer diagnosis. His vision for the podcast is to create a community to help young adults cope with their new identity and the emotional side effects of treatment. Hi, Truett. Hey, Jackie. How are you? I'm good, man. You are everything that's right up my alley Um, (laughs) without sounding too weirdly sexual. Um, (laughs) No, you said something the first time that we talked. You said you're the southern version of me, so um, I hope my accent doesn't come across to – it's just certain words with me. It's not like every single word that sounds super deep south, but I'll just see what I can do. Well, I love it. I think it's great. I have a lot of family in the <laughs> South, so it feels like I'm talking to someone in my family. I, um, yeah, I listen to your podcast and you guys, especially any of my listeners that have had um, cancer diagnoses, this is a true, it's podcast really, I loved it. You don't, you don't need to have a cancer diagnosis because I got so much out of it and something that I talk about a lot is that like chronic illness is chronic illness. You know, people that know what it is to be chronically ill in severe pain, um, in severe mental, emotional, physical pain, like they, you don't, you don't need to necessarily identify with the diagnosis to identify with the feelings and the journey. It's totally true. 
So I really love your podcast and it really reminds me of my mission um, too. So I'm really glad we're getting to have this this conversation. On that note, tell us a little bit about your wild story. <laughs> yeah, so life was great for me back in 2000, well, 2012. I was an amateur kickboxer for uh, several years and I had just had a fight in the, I think it was December of 2010. Um, it was 2011. Well, that's two. I can't remember. So I have a couple of chemo brain moments. One of those years. Anyways, I think it was 2011 actually. And um, I typically drop weight because you, you, know, you train so hard and everything, but I couldn't gain any weight back. And then I was starting to have a little bit of abdominal pain. And so I had talked about it and I'd, you know, shared the story with my mom and she's like, listen, what, you know, just go get it checked out. You, you probably don't have anything wrong with you. You're my healthiest child. You have nothing wrong with you, but you know, you've got great insurance, go get it checked out. So decided to make an appointment with my GI doctor. And so I was laying there and I was going over everything and they were doing all the pre stuff with me and asking me questions. And his exact words were, look, you probably just have Crohn's disease or something along those lines because I was I was having a little bit of blood in my stool, but I was having a little bit of pain. And he's like, you know, you're healthy. You, you, you probably just have Crohn's disease. But when I left, I kind of freaked out because I've never even had a cavity before, much less like a disease. I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to have a disease. I'm going to try to take care of myself so well and all these things. And um, he's like, well, look, let's just let's just schedule a colonoscopy and we'll see you know, what's going on. And so I did that. And when I was waking up um, from the drugs they give you, he came to my bedside and he said, look, there's no way to, you know, say this easily. Like, But today is not going to be a good day for you. Um, I couldn't even get my scope past this very large tumor just inside your colon. And I'm pretty sure it's colon cancer. And just hearing those words, you're like, Am I still high from the drugs or I don't know how to actually process all this, but you know, part of you is immediately like, no, not me. It can't be me, but maybe it is me. So you kind of go through all the emotions and he's like, look, well, I took a biopsy, you know, we'll check back with you in a couple of days and we'll kind of go from there. So, you know, I have a very strong faith. And so I was like, just praying, like, God, please don't let me have like cancer, like out of everything. And I told my mom and she's like, there's no way that can't be it, but we'll just see what happens. Well, about a week later, I found out that it was cancer, and the tumor was so large that um, it was about to cause a blockage. And you know, I was having so much blood and pain because the tumor was so large that it was hard for anything to kind of get past it. So they scheduled a surgery for me um, at the beginning of August of 2012. And can I ask? I can I? Sorry, yeah, can I cut sure. you off and ask a question? Did you, sure. did, looking back, do you see symptoms that you kind of missed or wrote off as not a big deal before the 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 symptoms that became a big deal? Now that I look back, I do because, again, like if you weight train and you you know you exercise a lot, sometimes you can have like blood in your stool just from like hemorrhoid pain and stuff if you're like straining and all these other things. And I had a very like strenuous workout, so. Every now and then I would notice something, but it would always go away. Right. And, um, but that was it until, you know, probably until the summertime. Um, and then I, and my weight was lower as well, too. And I've, I've always kind of fluctuated in a way. I'm, I'm not the smallest person in the world. I'm like 6'6", 230 pounds. I'm not a <laughs> small, small wow, man. Wow. You know? True yeah. it. 6'6". Like, six. 
but I was only like 210 pounds for a while, which was, was just light for me. So, wow. um, yeah, I was wondering what was going on. But when I look back now, there were certain things that I would say, but nothing that would alarm anyone out of the blue. Right, right. Okay. I was just curious because I, I see a lot of people that have cancer sort of come on like that, where it's like suddenly there's this insurmountable symptom. And it turns out that the cancer had been there for a while. And I'm always kind of curious about that. Like, Well, I asked about that too. I was asking the doctor when I asked all these questions, like, well, what did I do to cause this? Because always, you, know, you always think, what did I do? Because I'm people who are 31 don't get colon cancer. That's just, it's like one in several hundred thousand people mm. that get colon cancer. And he's like, look, there's nothing you, there's nothing you did. It's just kind of bad luck. And he's like, to be honest with you, you probably had it for several years. Mm. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, it takes a tumor to, to, for the tumor to get the size it was, it takes a long time for it to grow. And, um, I was like, okay, well, here I am thinking that I'm perfectly healthy and, uh, you know, I look healthy, but yeah, I, I guess that that wasn't really the truth. So what they did was they went in and they removed a, f- a whole foot of my colon. So I had a colon resection where they basically cut out a piece and take out the tumor with that piece. And they take out several lymph nodes around that area just to see if it's progressed in any way. And so they removed 15 lymph nodes and cancer came back positive in three of the 15 lymph nodes that they removed. So that means you have stage three cancer then because it could be anywhere if it's in your lymph nodes. So I had a port placed in my chest and then I started chemo. And um, the way the, the where the, the place mine was located was right before like your rectum starts inside and your colon attaches to it. So it was right on the line. And um you know, rectal cancer is pretty bad because if you have that, they tend to have to remove like your rectum and then you have a colostomy bag for the rest of your life. So I was borderline right where it was. But um, anyway, so they after the surgery, I started chemo. And after about six rounds of chemo, they stopped. And then I had um, 25 rounds of radiation uh, after that straight five days a week for five weeks. And then I started back chemo after that. And I finished up in February of 2013. Oh, it sounds really exhausting. I, I've shared this with you, but I do I do some independent contractor work with a cancer charity called Rhonda's Kiss. And um, so I talk to people a lot about chemo and radiation, and, and it just sounds so completely brutal on the body. Will you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, so I had no idea what to expect. So, you know, if you're not familiar with cancer, you automatically think I'm going to lose my hair and all these other things, which the type of chemo I was getting didn't do that. It was more involved your GI tract. So, you know, from your mouth all the way to the end, like it was that that's what it got affected by the chemo that I was taking. So anything from like an ulcer, a mouth sore to like, you know, frequent bowel movements, all those things, anything in between was what's going to get affected by the type of chemo that I had. So I didn't lose my hair, but it got thinner and uh, my skin was really weird. I, I didn't have earwax for like eight months. Whoa. And uh, I know it was kind of weird, like just little things, your fingernails barely grow because they're, they're fast growing cells. So it doesn't really, you know, the, the chemo is killing all that. But the first treatment I had was so bad that I remember um, 
I was I went to stay with my mom. I had chemo on Friday, and then recovered Saturday, Sunday. And they gave me a drug called Fulfox, which is has a, a big, powerful drug called oxaliplatin in there, which is a palladium drug that's really harsh on your body, but really effective to killing colon cancer. And they combined it with a drug called 5-FU, which the name kind of goes with it. But um, it's a pump that it had to, I had to wear for 72 hours afterwards. And what that did was kill the, you know, the slower-growing cells. So the oxaliplatin is going for the fast-growing. The 5-FU is going for the slow-growing cells. And then after a couple of days, like your pump runs out and then you disconnect and kind of go from there. And the first day I disconnected from that, like if you think of the worst hangover you've ever had where you can't even open your eyes or, or something along those lines, it was, it was 10 times worse than that. And, um, I just, I was remember saying to my mom, I was like, look, if it's going to be this bad, I don't know if I can do this. And here I'm, I think I'm tough, but it was so like sick and but then the thing about it is like after a couple of days, you start getting better and, and your body's slow. It's basically taking your body back to zero every single time. And as you progress, it gets worse. And that's one thing about this type of chemo. It starts getting into your extremities where you can feel it. You have a lot of hand and foot pain with this. But the worst thing is the cold sensation. So imagine drinking like a glass of water and it feels like needles going down your throat. So you can't drink anything except for like room temperature or warm water which doesn't sound like a a big deal but the first time you take a sip of water and it freaks you out because you're like oh my gosh it's the worst feeling right and it happened to be winter time as well too so it was a little cold i couldn't hold my steering wheel without like gloves on and all those things but the worst part about it for me was when the radiation started so i had 25 rounds of radiation and i've never been more tired in my entire life i couldn't even carry my own groceries up the stairs. I have a town home and like the first going from the ba- bottom floor to the, to the middle floor, like I have a set of stairs and I literally had to stop and like sit down. I like, couldn't even carry my own groceries up the stairs. And here I was used to going like all these rounds with people and everything, but I couldn't even make it up the stairs with, you know, three bags of groceries in my hand. So, mm-hmm. and my doctor would write prescriptions for me to take naps in the car because I was continued to work the entire time minus the days that I took off for treatment and stuff. But um You did. Like he, yeah. You absolutely. worked. Um so what were you working? What were you doing? Were you building furniture? No. <laughs> I hope this not. was prior to that. Yeah. Okay. Um so now I was actually the director of admissions for several different colleges here in Atlanta and at that time I was working for a large um private art school. We had about three thousand students and I had a I basically was the director of sales and recruiting. So we had a large 50, 60, we had 60 people on our admissions team at the time, um, basically admissions recruiters that I was responsible for. So I would still had all those responsibilities of, um, you know, making sure everyone had all their goals and all those things. And it's funny, people call out less like sick whenever they know you're the one with cancer, like, well, <laughs> he's got cancer and he showed up today. So I might as well. So talk to me. So talk to me about this, Drew, because I'm really interested in this piece. So for Lyme disease, for instance, the biggest thing is that like you get so tired, you can't carry groceries up the stairs, slash, you can't hold your own head up, slash, you're in a wheelchair, right? So Mm -hmm. working becomes something that's kind of impossible. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what I talk to my clients about this all the time. Like, what do you think? 
Do you think working really served you? Did you keep up with work because you needed to and you were afraid to lose the insurance and the income because you couldn't get time off or because you really wanted to have a place to go? You wanted to be able to serve people. You wanted to be able to get out of your own anxiety and depression. Like I know anxiety and depression comes to everyone with chronic illness in some way. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like it helped you? It hurt you? What would you suggest to people going through the same? For me, I'm very motivated and very self-driven, and I wanted to have as much of a normal life as possible. And so, you know, I I continued to work because I got a lot out of it because, I mean, I'm going to sit home and feel sick or I'm going to go to work and feel sick. At least I have more of a distraction there. And so it helped me, you know, the longer you're with your own thoughts is when the fantasies start and like you go down this crazy road of anxiety and depression. But if you can have a little bit of distraction in your life for me, and it's different for everyone, but for me, it really, it gave me something to look forward to. I had this thing. I tell everyone, I was like, everyone needs three things. You need something to do, something to look forward to and somebody to love. Well, I had two of those and I went to work every day. So I had something to do and something to look forward to. And so that really kept me rolling through the process all the way into the point where after I had my, so I had chemo, then I had radiation, then they started up the final rounds of chemo. I had to like physically, I couldn't physically be at work after that. So I had to end up taking short-term disability at that point, just because I couldn't stand up or sit down or, right. and I was just constantly, you just too, just way too sick to be around people and, you know, all the infections and all those things like right. that. So, but I ended up having to take like a disability at that point because I just couldn't, couldn't take working anymore. Right, right, right. So people, you know, I think one of the things is like, you'll feel it when you can't work anymore, you can't Mm -hmm. work anymore. And you need to give yourself that grace. Um, How long was your disability for in the end? Um, I feel like I took three months. And while I was out, I was getting a lot of calls from recruiters to try to get me to come they didn't really know anything that was going on but like several recruiters wanted me to come work at a different school or different location and stuff and um actually i decided to take another job while i was out once i started recovering and um came back a week and told everybody i was leaving i was okay and i was leaving but uh i I took on another job doing the same thing just at a different school so Mm. um but just listen to your body man i I was kind of getting pressured to go back you know everybody you know, people want you to come as soon as possible to come save the day and all those things. But, you know, if you're out there and you feel the pressure to go back to work, if you feel that pressure, like listen to your body first, your body will never lie to you. So listen to your body, listen to what it's saying and, you know, take your time when it comes down to doing that, because, you know, what, what, are, what good are you if you can't, you know, function normally? So, yeah, exactly. So tell me a little bit more about that. I actually want to dive into this further. Um, when you had those that time off and you were on disability, you know, it looks it looks very different taking care of yourself when you're at home all day sick than it does when you get to, like, break up your day and go to work. So what did your self-care start to look like in that time that you were sort of home and maybe more isolated? Yeah, so it's funny that year – um, I ended a very serious long-term relationship, um, in February of that year. And then in July, I come, you know, I have cancer. So I just, I thought 2018, I'm sorry, 2012 was going to be great. I just bought a brand new home. <laughs> and then, uh, um, so I went from an apartment to a home and then, um, 
actually got divorced in February of that year. And then, so I was, you know, going through that cycle. And before I could get over that and all those emotions, boom, I have cancer. And then it's having to take care of myself and, you know, pity party of one over here some nights um, as I, you know, kind of progress through different things. But I've always been very independent. So I know how to take care of myself. There's just certain things that, you know, I think family and friends and even neighbors can step up and do for you as well, too. But you have to really communicate that out to people because, again, like I'm kind of the guy that's hard to do something for because, you know, I'm the leader of the group and the the one that they think, you know, is bulletproof and all those other things. But it's it's not the case whenever it whenever you get really sick like that, like there's certain things that I need it done. And, you know, whether it's have people come clean my house or make a bunch of food and bring it over or bring me a bunch of movies or magazines or all these different things just to give me some kind of attention. But, you know, I'm really big on treating people how they want to be treated. And I lost a couple of friends to the time too. I guess they couldn't, you know, be around me. I know people have experienced that a lot, but I guess the thought of me dying or something like that happening, they just, you know, decided not to be in my life anymore, which is kind of weird guys don't really do that to each other, but I had a couple of you know male friends that did that. But, um, so honestly, like just, it was, it was baby steps and, um, you, you do as much as you could do. I would make myself something to eat, walk up the stairs and know that I wasn't coming back down the rest of the night. So I would just eat upstairs in my room and I could just go straight to sleep because the fatigue was so bad. So you just, you know, have to know what your limitations are and, and all these different things. I tried to still, like, when I took the, I would call it a radiation break, I tried to start going back to the gym a little bit, but, I mean, I couldn't jump rope for, like, 20 seconds kind of thing. Mm. So I wasn't trying to push it too hard. But that's just one of those things where I just try to do as much as I could to keep myself sane. But the mental side of everything, I think, is, to me, is the the rabbit hole you kind of go down because – when you can't sleep at night, the type of chemo that I was on causes a lot of insomnia. So I would go from one bedroom to the next trying to find a different place to sleep. And the next thing you know, it's 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. and the sun's coming up and you just go take a shower. And I would even write myself notes like I have a glass shower. So I would just write myself like a note saying you're going to be OK. And that way the next day I would come in just to give myself some sort of reminder each day that I was going to be OK and. You know, I wasn't going to die and all the things that I had read, you know, that Google told me right before I went to sleep about how, you know, I, all these people die from cancer wasn't going to be me. Mm-hmm. So did you do a lot of um, doctor Googling? Oh, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I try to be really specific, too, to find the answers that I wanted. And um, so it's like my age is 31, <laughs> at stage three, colon cancer. What's my life expectancy? Because I was trying to plan out the days and stuff, which to me was you know it was more than just about me Uh, my family's had some tragic events you know i've I've lost a brother and my biggest thing was i don't want you know my parents to have to bury another child because i saw how tough that was so that was something that you know for me you know dying and stuff it'd be sad and all those things but i was thinking more about the other people that were closer to me in my life having to experience that and having to go through all that as well. And that was something that I would say overall kind of bothered me the most. Mm, Yeah. 
I understand that. Did you, um, I'm just going to ask a straight question about Dr. Mm -hmm. Google, would you uh, suggest people do that or would you suggest people stay away? (laughs) (laughs) Look, you can tell people to stay away, but they're going to do it. So it's one of those things where there's a grief cycle to go through. And I'm, you know, the faster you can get through certain stages, I think the better. And um, when you're going through, you know, the, the denial side and the, you know, the, the, I guess the, the bargaining side, that's kind of what the, the Googling goes through. You're like, okay, if I do this, I'll live to this day. And, and what if I don't do this? And all, you're trying to like bargain out the rest of your life. I think that's just part of it. It's not going to make a difference. You know, your, your body is completely different than, you know, the people that you read about. It's like restaurant reviews. You only see the bad stuff online. And I think that's the same way with, you know, our disease as well, too. No one's online bragging about how healthy they are. They're out enjoying their life. You know, it's the people who have had negative things happen or, you know, most cases are the ones talking about it and sharing about it. And and in my case, there wasn't a lot of people that were my age that were actually talking about it. It was mostly people that were 50 and older. And so, you know, statistically, I had a 50-50 shot of living five years. So I'm Mm. on the other side of that right now. So that's... You know, it, it is what it is, but I think it's part of the process, but it's not something that I would recommend going out immediately doing because you're not going to find the answers to anything. Right. Yeah, I try to, I think you're so right that it's what people are going to do it anyway. We can tell them not to, but it's part of the cycle. Um, I did a lot of Googling too. Actually, like you, you know, how you walked away from that first appointment with the doctor feeling like, oh, I don't want Crohn's disease. <laughs> like, I don't want yeah. a disease. I, before I got diagnosed, I did a lot of Googling because I had these rashes all over my body and um, I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I was Googling, Googling, and I was like, oh, I think I have psoriasis. Oh, that would be the worst right. thing ever. Like, <laughs> I had like this, I had so much anxiety about having psoriasis. And when I went to the doctor, you know, I was like so happy to find out it wasn't psoriasis, but it turned out to be this like crazy life-threatening thing. <laughs> yeah. It's so You wish you wish it was psoriasis now, I was right? like, gee, I wish it was psoriasis. <laughs> um so anyway, it's I, I totally agree with you. Like people are going to Google, you know, I what I like to tell people is if you need to Google, do it. But like talk to somebody that you love that makes you feel good before you do it and talk to somebody mm-hmm. or do something that makes you feel good after you do it and set a timer. Like you get to Google for 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> and then go watch your favorite movie. Um, yeah, we, we all want answers. And I think that's the, the big thing is we all want to know. And not knowing is worse than knowing sometimes. And so we try to do whatever we can to know. But again, it's like it's like being anxiety, which is it's anxiety in a way. It's like sitting in a rocking chair. You're, you're moving, but you're not really going anywhere. Kind right. Of that's that's kind of what Google is like. Right. Yeah, you're, you're right. And so on that note, did, did the doctors tell you anything about – you know, your trajectory, your prognosis? Yeah, I asked. Um, and th- they kind of, you know, went back to, oh, well, you know, you're healthy. You're going to fight this as a healthy person, not someone who's older and, and all those things. It wasn't, I never got like a clear answer and I point blank asked because I would kind of, I don't know why, but I would always like be super tough. And then when I got in front of my doctor, I would just break down and like, 
cry and everything else in front of her and she'd be like whoa where's this big guy unloading on me all of a sudden <laughs> but that was you know that was just kind of the just what i did i guess i'd, I'd hold all that in and i just like unleash on her every two weeks that i saw her but um i ask and she there's no way to know she's like let's just see how you respond to the treatment if you're not responding to the chemo or if we start seeing growth in other areas then that obviously changes things with you and stuff so that was in my case that was what they were looking for before they started giving me like you know direct answers i would say right so tell me a little bit about your last your last run with chemo and the turn of events that happened for you oh man it was so i was on number 10 and uh, once you get towards the end and i'm not sure if lyme is like this like you know i know you guys get on like tons of antibiotics and all those things like when you when the doctor's like all right we only got two more weeks you kind of you see the light at the end of the tunnel and you get excited and it kind of gives you a little more energy to run towards the end. But, you know, like in any race that lasts, you know, hundred meters or whatever it is, is always the toughest part because when you're, when you're the tired, most tired and when you have, you know, all these obstacles kind of coming at you, but I was excited because I only had a couple more treatments left and I knew I was really sick and with the chemo, like, so you have it on a Friday and you basically have it every two weeks and you recover in between that time. Well, the more you get, you know, maybe it takes five days to recover, then six, then seven, then eight, then nine. And then it's like 12 days to recover. And then you have one day and then it's time to get chemo again. Well, the 10th treatment on the way there, I was like dry heaving. I was just thinking about it. I was like, oh, I'm going to get sick and just the smells and all those things. Well, they started giving me my medication and, um, my feet started itching a little bit and I was like, okay, that's weird. And then it kind of starts, I was like, mom's my butt itching. Like it was just kind of weird. I was on the phone talking to someone and I was like, my mom would always come and sit there with me. And I was like, Hey, you grab that nurse because I'm starting to feel weird. And before the nurse had came over, like my face had swollen up and I couldn't breathe. And I was like slowly trying to get breaths out of my throat because I was having an anaphylactic, like, you know, reaction to the chemo all of a sudden and like I felt myself like passing out, like not breathing and all that. I was like, oh my God, I'm about to die. Like, how did this happen in like a matter of 30 seconds? But um, my body all of a sudden rejected the chemo and I had an allergic reaction and it's pumping through. Like the port goes directly to your heart. So it's getting there super quick. And um, they came and disconnected and pumped me with enough of Benadryl to kill an elephant. And like I was just out of it for the rest of the day. But it kind of freaked me out. And so I was like, well, what do I do now that I have my, that I'm, that I'm allergic to the medication that's supposed to be healing me or helping me. And, you know, I had a big decision to make. Well, immediately in my head, I'm like, well, if I don't finish the last two treatments, I'm going to get cancer again, then I'm going to die. And all these things are going to happen. But it's one of those moments where, and it's so hard to explain. And I don't mean to like go into anything kind of crazy when I say this, but when I talk about listening to your body, like it's, it, again, it was one of those things I was just like, praying, like, God, you know, what do I do? Because I have a huge decision here to make and I don't know what the outcome is going to be. And, you know, if I choose not to, and it comes back or if I choose to have it happen again, and then I had this reaction again, like what, you know, what's the right path to choose. And like the more I prayed about it, the, the closer I got to like, okay, listen, you're done. Like your, your body just says no. And, you know, don't go against what your body is telling you because it's it's telling you that for a reason. So I told my doctor, I was like, listen, I'm not going to um, take any more chemo. And she's like, cool. That's that's." She's like, there's no magic number. 
we try to give 12 as the max and she's like if you only got 10 or nine and a half or whatever then that's just what you'll you'll have and i was like all right cool so we just went from there and that was my last chemo Mm. and then and after that, I think it's so interesting, and I love this part of your story because, um, again, it's totally different. It's antibiotics, but I had a very similar experience with antibiotics. I was on them for a year and um, many at a time, and I was given another another dose, another prescription for three more, and I just went to take some and was, like, dry heaving. It was just, like – my body rejected. My body yeah. suddenly rejected the idea of antibiotics. And I just really think that the body is so smart and the body knows when it's done. Um, and I, what I love about your story that, that really is parallel to mine is that you really knew that you were going to heal then. Like yeah. that you were like, this is my, re- now I'm recovering. Yeah. It's this weird feeling that came over me. And Again, like, you know, I mean, there's skeptics about everything, but like, I just felt like I was like healed and there's no way to, you know, fact check that or anything along those lines. But I just felt like I was like, I'm healed. And it was, we- it was like this peaceful feeling that I gotten. And I don't even know how to describe it or explain it or anything along those lines, but like, it was one of those things like, Hey, you're healed. You don't have to go through this anymore. And, um, I'm not going to argue with that. So I just said, okay, I took that as the truth, and you know, here we are you know, almost and, six years later. And true, first of all, this is so amazing, and I, and I love what you're doing, and I love the message you're sharing, and I just think your story is so powerful. Um, what else did you do? Did you do other things during that time? Did you eat a strict diet? Did you have a strong spirituality? I know clearly you have a strong yeah. faith. So what, what were you doing with your spirituality? You know, how were you, obviously you were sleeping. I hear that work was a part of your healing too. Um, mm-hmm. you know, how are you working with your mind, with self-love, with, uh, I'm especially interested in sort of diet stuff with chemo and, but did you, do you feel like really the chemo and the radiation healed you or do you feel like it was a combination of a bunch of things? Yeah. So I'm, I, you know, some people go way Eastern, way Western, depending on your healing process. I, I love a combination of the both. Like I think, you know, originally you went a certain route, but now with just the advances in technology and medicine and there's just so many things out there now that people have discovered that dramatically make a difference so i'm big on both eastern and western and western medicine and um so to me like i i couldn't eat certain things i would say and um carbs i I tend to digest carbs better during chemo so i couldn't eat a ton of like you know lean protein or anything along those lines and you tend to lose weight and you're sick and you know, like I said, your GI tract is all messed up. So you kind of eat whatever you can tolerate. And that was, for me, that was, you know, they call it the brat diet. Like it's the bananas, rice, applesauce, toast, kind of just light carbs like that. Just whatever soothes your GI tract. And if I could eat more then I would, and if I couldn't, then I couldn't. And I just, I didn't, I didn't go straight juice cleanse diet or anything along those lines. I have talked to, I've interviewed several people who've done like fasting during their chemo and everything else but for me i just was trying to get you know as many calories in me as i possibly could so 
I didn't do anything specific with my diet. I just tried to eat what I could when I could. And that worked for me. Um, mentally, I, I like to read a lot. So when you're out of work and you're used to doing, you know, having so much responsibility, the first thing I started doing was watching like a ton of movies. And then you watch everything you can watch on Netflix. And then it's like, okay, now what do I do? I never played video games. So I started playing video games and I hated that. And um, so I stopped doing that. But I started reading a lot and really journaling. And then it's like, I started thinking like, whoa, why me? You know, that's one of the questions we ask ourselves. Why did I get sick or not everybody else? And I would start to really write and journal and document all the things that were going on with me. And it really started leading towards a purpose in a way for me. And I had all these ideas of things that I wanted to do, you know, with my cancer diagnosis. And as things turned a corner, I, you know, I really wanted to accomplish these certain things that I would have never done but I think to me, once, you know, when you get all career focused and everything, you, you become really selfish sometimes. And, and I think men tend to be a little more selfish than women sometimes as well. Like we, you know, we feel like we got to do all this and be all that and all these other things or whatever. Um, just, you know, the testosterone's flowing and all this other stuff. But I look back and I, I feel like all my selfishness just left. And I think started thinking about other people a lot more than me trying to climb the corporate ladder and, you know, make a ton of money and have all these things and do all this, I became more of who I was supposed to be by, you know, I feel like that's what brokenness does to us. It really just, it, it, it breaks away everything that's not firm in our life. Mm. And so for me, like the selfishness, um, the, the, you know, all about me kind of thing, you know, that all that all went away and my focus became on other people and, you know, from the spiritual standpoint, like I've always, um, you, know, you know, raised in a in church and I always had like a, a strong, firm foundation. And it's weird when you start like doubting, like, well, God, why did you do this to me? I've had all this happen. You know, those moments are so real. And, you know, I don't know if people agree or disagree or whatever, but like I encourage you to have like, you know, if you have a, a faith or whatever, that to have those conversations with God, because that's part of your relationship. And, you know, there's, there's times you want to yell at your husband or wife or whoever, and you have those moments where you're, you're passionate about something and you argue and you, all those things, but that's what builds up your relationship. And, you know, that to me, it really strengthened my relationship with God because I was wondering like, why this happened to me? And, you know, what did I do to cause this and all those things that you kind of go through. But more importantly, it was, it was something that, you know, I was, I would look at myself in the mirror. I would stand there like, you know, like, God, I don't even recognize this guy standing in front of me when I had like my port hooked up and I was all like skinny and pasty and all those things. And I was like, who is this person? Like, who is, who, who have I become? And one, one time I was doing that and I, this is so weird. I sound like a crazy person saying this, but I would get my nose really close to the glass and I would just like, where I couldn't see my body and I would just stare at myself like in the eyes because that, that's who you really are. Like when you, deep down your soul, you know, you can only look and see who you are on the inside. I would take a moment. I would get really close and I would say like, who are you? And then one time I did that and my hand like brushed up against something on my uh, sink and it was a crumpled up piece of paper that had gotten wet. And I looked on it and it was, um, it was a, a scripture that my mother had written me back very in the very beginning when I was sick. And um, 
it's the passage that says, you know, I will not live, but die and declare the works of God. And I was like, holy crap, like that's, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. And not only am I going to live is I'm going to tell everybody all the great things that have happened because of this situation. And that's exactly the way my path, the path of life that I live right now, which is so wild. And I, you know, I, I asked this question, to a lot of people on my show, like, what's the best thing that cancer has done for you, which sounds kind of crazy, but it's, you know, you hear people say like, it really put me on a certain path and you might feel the same way with, with chronic illness. Like it really put you on a path to where you're helping people and you know, the disease wasn't just for you. It's really been for so many other people that you've impacted. And that's the way I live my life now. And not that you have to get cancer or a chronic illness to live life the way you're supposed to. But for me, you know, I guess that kind of brokenness, brokenness needed to happen in me for my life to be, you know, to, to fulfill all the things that I was supposed to do. And that's how I live my life every day now, so, which is kind of wild when I think about it. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I relate so much. And listening to you speak, it just really cements my feelings around the crossover for anyone, especially young people that um, deal with, with life-threatening serious chronic illness. Um, you know, it, it's it's so similar across the board. Like, you don't sound crazy at all. Everyone that comes on my show talks about looking at themselves in the mirror and being like, I don't recognize this person. I better start to, like, love what's underneath, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's hard, um, though. You know, when you're a young adult, like, you have so much life left to live and you're you know when you figure you think yourself out professionally and you think it's going to go one way and then all of a sudden it doesn't your identity is mm-hmm. you know you don't know who you are and now who who are you going to be are you going to be the am i going to be the guy with cancer now or is cancer just going to be a part of my life story mm-hmm. and when you decide that your disease is not going to be your identity and it just becomes part of you then you're ready to pick up and run with that and run forward just like everything else has happened mm-hmm. to you in your life Right, right. And I want to talk to you more about God. So let's, uh, let's hit this weekly challenge. And at the end of the episode, let's take a break for it. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. All right, Truett, so tell us a little bit about the challenge this week. So, long story short, back in 2001, September 11th, um, when all that went down, my dad was out of town, and I was freaked out because I couldn't get in touch with him. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, everybody was freaking out because no, no planes were flying, and then, you know, all the things that had happened with that, I was like, what if he's on a plane, all this other stuff, so you know, taking it back a notch. I grew up with a very tough militant type father who made me feel like that I was never good enough. And he, I've talked about all this since then. And so we're cool with this. I'm not spilling any kind of beans that he'd be mad about, but, um, he, 
he always kind of made me feel like I wasn't good enough and he was really tough on me and I had a lot of like anger and, you know, just one of those things where you carry that through life. And I was always kind of mad at him for, you know, all the ways he treated me when I was growing up and all these other things. Well, I remember like listening to this guy talk about how, you know, anger is poison to the soul. And his name is Dr. Charles Stanley. He's a big pastor here in Atlanta. And he was talking about how he had, you know, a stepfather who was abusive towards him and his mother and all these things. And um, he was talking about forgiveness and stuff. So I, I knew in my head that I had to forgive my father. And before I did that, I really wanted to, to kind of practice because that was that's a very you know tough conversation to have for a you know a 20 year old to have with like a 50 year old like and it's your dad who's mean and all these other things right so you know for me the challenge was you know actually sitting in front of him and instead of me like asking you know instead of me like wanting forgiveness you know him to you know forgive or you know ask me for forgiveness i turned it around him i was like listen dad i just want to apologize to you and he kind of freaked out he's like what'd you do like I was like, I've been holding this anger against you for all these years. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know if you know what, you know, how you made me feel growing up, but like I've had these horrible feelings towards you. And I just want to say, I'm sorry. And I've never seen my dad cry before until that moment. And he cried and our relationship's been completely different ever since. So my challenge for everyone is, you know, think of one or two or three or, you know, if you have a list of people, whether it's a family member or a sibling, coworker, whoever, uh, a friend, someone in your life, like get get a chair in front of you, just a blank chair, if you can't get that person, and go through the same exercise where you uh, you know you obviously have these these harsh feelings for something they may have done, and you have no complete control over or whatever else, and you know practice apologizing to them for holding those feelings and. If you get the opportunity, like go ahead and do that with the person. Your relationship will forever be changed. You get to release all of that anger, all of that poison out of your body and make room for more goodness as you're getting rid of the, the bad stuff. And I promise you, your life will be completely different if you do that. So Beautiful. I think, you know, there are a lot of people that say um, or there are a lot of things that are written about how cancer is resentment held in the body. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's accurate or right. true. I'm just saying, and I certainly don't think illness is ever somebody's fault, right? And sometimes saying something like that makes it seem like it's the individual's fault, right? Like what, right. like you did something to cause it. So I don't want to say that I'm saying that, but I think if you look at it sort of without defenses and say like, okay, I have a really big thing with healing, like take what you like and leave the rest and Mm -hmm. see where every tool can benefit you. And the truth is, is that if you are holding on to crazy amounts of resentment and anger, right, um, it is going to affect your immune system. Like that's just kind of what what happens. You, You start to shut down parts of your body. Things aren't moving freely. Um, so I think that, you know, everyone that's healing from anything, it is really important to look at the places that you're holding, holding on to grudges, holding on to anger, holding on to the past and resentments and, and see, 
you know, see where you can forgive. And I, I don't, you know, if you don't have the opportunity this week to, or in the next couple of weeks to go out and, and apologize or, or even put the chair in front of you and do that exercise, I think it's really good to just get your mind going. Like, where am I resentful in life? You know, who, who, who do I feel this incredible anger towards? And is it benefiting me? Like, <laughs> would I be happier without it? Is it worth getting rid of? Like, is it worth, you know, having a change of perspective around this and forgiving somebody? And I think just kind of ruminating or, or reflecting on some of those questions might be really powerful. Yeah, taking the personal inventory is so hard to do sometimes. And we, you know, one day at a time, things always change. And it's, you don't notice something that happens one day at a time. And so... Just like you said, like really, okay, I'm going to stop for a second and think, oh, am I, do I have any kind of anger or resentment towards anyone, you know, regarding this, regardless of the situation, like, and really try to resolve that. It, it frees up so much in your life. And I never thought I'd have a good relationship with my father, like just ever, because we're so different. Mm-hmm. But everything's perfect now. Like he's, you know, it's funny. I can tell you stories. Like it's, he's so, he tells me things like how proud of me he is and all these other things now. I, I, long for that growing up but mm. I mean I didn't get it till I was older but you know until he, you let go yeah, like it sounds like you crazy. let go of needing that and that's when he started to give it to you exactly wow that's so beautiful so I I, I want to touch on I know that you have dealt with suicide within your family you touched mm-hmm. on losing your brother earlier and um I want to touch on what that experience was like for you and and if you were left with any resentment around that and had to work any of this forgiveness stuff with, with your brother's suicide. Yeah, unfortunately I was. Like, you know, I think we, if we look back in our lives, we can all think of a moment or two that we regret the most. And the moment I regret the most is right before my brother died. Um, it was Easter in 2008 and my dad... Earlier that month, my dad had gotten into a motorcycle accident. I was actually on my way to see him, and it's just a really, really bad motorcycle accident. And he ended up being left quadriplegic. So he's he's quadriplegic. He's in the hospital. He doesn't know what's going on. And then Easter rolls around, and you know it's all crazy with the family and all the other stuff. And then my brother just didn't wasn't taking it well. And so my brother was big, huge, muscular guy, and like super tough on the outside, super soft on the inside. And, um, and, you know, no one knew kind of what was going on, but he, he just wasn't taking it well. Well, we had gotten to like a borderline fist fight on Easter and said a bunch of horrible things to each other. And two days later, I got the call at work that um, my brother had killed himself. And there was no, that doesn't, that just, we didn't never experienced that in my family before. And it was something that was really tough to, you know, hear, hear those words like, you know, true it, um, you know, your, your brother took his life today. And my mom called me and I was like, I got pulled out of a, like a sales meeting to, to be told that. And it's, it's, that's, that's surreal. And cause there's no coming back. You know, there's no, I'm sick. I'm going to deal with it kind of thing. It's just, it's a done deal. And you just kind of collect yourself and, you know, you go get your stuff and you work your way down to where all your family's at and, you know, having to deal with all of that and and then having to come back to the hospital and, and tell your father who can't 
do anything or say anything or go anywhere, you know, that his son died. And then that's, it's, it's horrible. Like it's, it's, it's the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. But then I thought about, it, I was like, the last thing I said to him was, you know, something mean. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but that, that our last conversation was a, you know, you're dumb. I hate you. Not, I probably didn't say I hate you, but whatever, like kind of conversation. And that was it. And so I had to live the rest of my life knowing that that's our last conversation. And that to me, like it took me a while to really get to not to say get over that, but to really understand that. And I would say, you know, what made it not better, but what made me, what helped me cope with that was brothers and sisters fight. You know, if you have a brother or sister, you, you fight, you say things, you get over it. It's family. It is what it is. And you just kind of move along and laugh about it. And I thought, you know, we would have laughed about that a week later. So, it, but it took me like almost a year or so just to get to the point where some random person's like, hey, you know, you guys would have been okay a week later. And I don't know who, it, I don't remember who it was or, or, you know, why they said that to me, but it really just brought me a lot of relief. Like, you're right. You know, that's, that's what families do. They fight, they, they have situations that happen and everybody's stressed out and they say things or do things that they wouldn't normally do. But that to me really helped me cope with that. But, um, you know, mental illness, it, it snuck up on us like just very fast. It was one of those things where, um, yeah, just kind of the way it went down. Like he, it was like that he was about to graduate from college and, everything was going great. My dad just got hurt, but I guess, you know, he'd always, again, had like some anxiety issues with certain things. But, um, a mom said the, the night before he was acting really weird. Like he was just kind of almost like mentally out of it. And he wasn't on drugs or anything along those lines. They did toxicology reports and no drugs in the system or anything like that. And the next morning he got up to go to work and he was, uh, he was an electrician. He was about to graduate from electrician school or whatever. It's some kind of tech school or whatever. But um, he walked past my mom and he said bye. And then he was had drove out to this job site. It was like seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning, and they were all standing there talking with the contractor. And they said he just turned around and walked off. And they were like, "Where's Where's Jake going?" And he just got in his truck and drove off. And he drove behind this gas station that was close by and, and shot himself in his truck. And um, you know, the, somebody happened to find him a couple hours later and they called, you know, my mom and everything else and the police and all the other stuff. And we had to deal with that. And that's, it's, wow. it's hard for me. Yeah. To even the hardest part for me besides like missing him every single day is to, to think about someone being that sad mm -hmm. that that's the only option. And yeah. that, that kills me because if I would have known he was that, or if anybody would have known he was that sad or upset, like we would have, you know, moved heaven and earth to make sure that he would have been okay. But he didn't tell us and we didn't see it. So you know, I think everybody kind of feels a little bit of guilt from that because you, not that you should go around looking to see who's going to commit suicide in your family, you know, family or friend circle, but like being aware of that, like, you know, we just weren't aware. And uh, again, like that's, that's, we all kind of share a little bit of that guilt, not knowing that that was going to happen. So mm. we could have done something about it. So. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Truett. That was really 
a really heartbreaking story on so many levels. My God, what your family has been through. I mean, your dad went quadriplegic. Your brother killed himself. You got cancer. Your mom, I hope your mom has been (laughs) just watching the people she loves the most struggle, uh, suffer. Um, She's she's, uh, amazing. One one of the moments, like I think we all have like a moments imprinted on us in life is when at his funeral, like I saw my mom stand there. There was a line wrapped out to the street waiting to see everybody loved my brother. And Mm. like my mom stood there the entire time and was like consoling like his friends. And he was, gosh, he was, he wasn't even 21 or he was right around 21 or 22, somewhere right around that range. And yeah, he was 22. He just turned 22. So, um, I mean, all of his friends, like, and she was just consoling. And I watched her, like, the strength in her as she consoled, like, hundreds of, like, you know, 20-year-olds that were coming to see him. And mm. and that's, you know, she's she's the real MVP of the family for sure. Mm. And she's had to endure so much. And, you know, it's, it's definitely taken its toll on her. So just from a caregiver standpoint, like, it's – she's had a lot – kind of go on with all that stuff but sure she's such a she's, she's such a solid rock man it's sure it's amazing yeah you know it's interesting I um unfortunately have been you know have had I have a brother who is in that much pain and we all know it um and he has attempted and you know etc and um there's a it's interesting to hear you talk about how y- there's a guilt in in not knowing because there's also so much guilt in knowing and not being able to help um, because there's something really interesting like you can only help as much as a person is willing to get help, right? right? So with illness, with mental illness, with everything. And my brother has been so unwilling to get help but is – suffering in an extreme way in an extreme way and um you know there's so much guilt around like not being able to help or not helping the right way or not being able to find the right thing and and really being very worried about that um in terms of like wanting to make sure you do everything before someone successfully takes their own life um so I just think it's I think maybe there's just always guilt. I don't know, but it sounds like you really had to work the forgiveness with yourself in this process. And yeah, absolutely. It was, and it took it's it took a long time because again, as as everybody's kind of working through it, like it gets brought up, like, well, what if you didn't do this, or what if you didn't do that, and families start fighting, and that that's hurtful, you know. Like when you when everybody's still kind of mourning and you know, again, that's kind of part of it. Like everybody feels guilty. And sometimes when you feel guilty, you want to point a finger. And at the end of the day, like for us, and and again, this is just kind of what, what we felt is, you know, that's the choice someone's going to make. Like, there's really nothing you can do about it. Mm. And the fact of stopping them, you know, unless you catch them mid whatever's going on, like, and you if, wrestle the gun out of their hand, yeah, you know, exactly. and then and then like, hope they don't try again. But yeah, you're right. Because if if they're that committed to something, like, and I'm not saying that to say that there's there's no hope because I 100% agree everybody has hope, everybody until they don't, and um, but that kind of again part of the guilt thing is like 
I couldn't have stopped it in a way as well either. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, he thought that was his only option and stuff. And it doesn't make you feel any better, but, um, just a tough, just, just tough all the way around. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And I think that a lot of people will be able to relate, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of suicide and there's a lot of stigma around it. And I think it's really important to talk about, um, and to just talk about your story and making it through, like you have really come through a lot and you're stronger today for it and you're better today for it. And you really, it sounds like you really believe that all, that the experiences were a gift to you, mm-hmm. I mean, your can- your experience with cancer, especially, and um, you're out there helping people and it's super inspiring. Uh, and I, I love just getting to know you and have a conversation with you. You know, you're so heart centered and lovely to talk to and really refreshing. So I really appreciate what you're doing. And I know it's just going to grow bigger and bigger. And you're going to help more and more people. Um, Where can we find you, Truett? Yeah, so I started the 1% podcast. It's the podcast where I interview cancer warriors and survivors. I feel like there's such a powerful healing and storytelling and it's so cathartic just to tell your story, as I just told mine, <laughs> um, but for other people to listen as well, too. So there's not a tremendous amount of resources for young adults, I would say, as well. So the 1% podcast has really impacted thousands and thousands of people all across the world, actually. And, and we're in 24 different countries now. We've had downloads all over the world. And it's, you know, it's inspiring to see people really taking something, whether it's one piece or it's one thing from my story or someone else's to really help add to your healing. And, you know, just the coping and the the identity and the community and all those things that you get from, you know, sharing your experience with someone like you and I are forever connected right now, right? You're always going to remember each other. So the same thing with the podcast as well, too, as people listen to different stories, like they can really connect and relate and, you know, it may be exactly what they need to hear at that moment. And that's why it's called the 1% podcast is because, you know, those moments where I felt like I was on my 1% of being all I had left, something or someone would be placed into my life that really gave me that extra, you know, boost that I needed to really get going and get some strength and kind of get back on my own. And um, that's what the show, you know, that's my purpose of the show is to be able to really do that. With people so um people can reach out to me if you know someone who has you know is battling cancer or who survived cancer or even a caregiver or provider i have all these people on the show um you can email me at info at one percent podcast.com you can follow me on facebook instagram twitter at one percent podcast or if you want some awesome furniture you can go to tailordesignshop.com and see all the things i'm doing now in my second career Mm, I love it. I love it. And I will be linking to all of those things. Um, so if you're interested, and you should be because it's so great, um, the link to the podcast and the website and your Instagram will all be in the show notes. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with? Yeah, just based on our conversation and the talks of like, forgiveness and you know the suicide and everything else i think one thing people don't realize is feelings change and you know just as feelings change in relationships or feelings change about what you want to eat for dinner like if you have if you're having like 
tough thoughts. You know, if you're you know, thinking about, you know, harming yourself or something on those lines, like eventually those feelings change and you just have to have, hold on and have the strength while you're going through the tough time. And if you don't feel like reaching out, some, sometimes it's hardest to talk to the person that you're closest to because they're going to freak out and you have to worry about them. But at that moment, it's all about you. So if you have, you know, if you're having those moments or if you have, if you want to talk to a complete stranger, that's not going to judge you in any way whatsoever, no matter what you've done or what you've thought of or what you're considering, like, seriously, please reach out to me. I would love to have that conversation with you or just listen. I don't have to even speak a word. I would love to just listen and, you know, just be there for you because I promise you that feeling will change because that's not a healthy, normal feeling. And, you know, it will change and things will get better. I promise. Mm, I love that. I love it. Love it. Love it. Everything is temporary. Thank you so much, Truett, for coming on. And um, can't wait to see you next week. Truett, thanks for the inspiration. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.